Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. We'd like to introduce the next talk uh, by Jordan Bastian from Clorox Healthcare. The title of um, Jordan's talk is Introducing a New Disinfection Technology Against C. difficile. Good morning, everyone. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be part of this wonderful conference. Today, as was mentioned, I'm going to be talking about a new disinfection technology against C. diff. So let me begin today by reemphasizing the problem of C. diff and its impact. C. diff infections continue to be a large problem greatly impacting healthcare in our community. The statistics surrounding this deadly pathogen speak for themselves. Each year, over half a million cases occur, and of those, roughly 15,000 deaths. We know that the length of hospital stays are often extended due to C. diff-related complications and comorbidities. These infections not only have significant financial impact, but also health impact, but also financial as well. Care associated with infected individuals put added financial stress on family members and loved ones. It is estimated that C. diff infections contribute an added $1.5 billion to the healthcare industry annually. Again, this is no small problem. C. diff is particularly a nuisance pathogen as it can survive on surfaces for months at a time and spreads relatively easily. It has the ability to become airborne. For example, when a C. diff patient or asymptomatic carrier flushes a toilet. Studies have shown this is one way C. diff can spread to other surfaces. Hand hygiene is, a critical, is critical for any infection prevention program because it is known that C. diff can easily be spread from patient to patient via hands. Workers need to be physically washing their hands with soap and water and not just using hand sanitizer. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers are highly effective against non-spore-forming organisms, but they do not kill C. diff spores or remove C. diff from the hands. Because hands are only as clean as the environment around us, cleaning and disinfection efforts cannot be forgotten. These efforts must be done in combination with other CDC-recommended initiatives, including contact precautions, isolation, and, as I already mentioned, hand hygiene. These interventions, when used together consistently, offer greater level protection and outweigh any strength of a single layer of intervention. I'd like to walk through the chain of infection using C. diff outbreak as an example scenario. This chain of infection illustrates how this pathogen can spread in a long-term care facility. The red broken chain links represent opportunities where the chain of infection could be broken with either hand hygiene or cleaning and disinfection, or both. The starting point or pathogen in this case is C. diff. The reservoir is the index or initial case, and let's say his name is Stephen. In this long-term care facility, Stephen is a resident on antibiotics and recently started having loose stools. Stephen began shedding C. diff spores into his environment. The portal of exit of C. diff is Stephen's diarrheal stools. The mode of transmission in this case is, would be indirect contact. As Stephen, healthcare workers, or visitors come in contact with contaminated surfaces in the patient room or area. They then transfer those spores or acetic uh, pathogens to another area or room. Um, in this example, we're, we're going to talk about a dining room. This would happen if a patient wasn't properly if a patient room wasn't properly disinfected. So maybe the disinfectant being used wasn't, didn't have the acetic kill claims needed, or maybe they didn't reach the required contact time. The portal of entry in this example is oral, so that either unclean hands or possibly contaminated food come in contact with someone that who is susceptible. This is the last link in the chain of infection, a susceptible host, so this could be someone who is maybe advanced in age or on or using antibiotics. 
they then can become infected and the cycle starts over. So as you can see, out of the six chain links, four represent opportunities where the chains of infection could have been broken. So there are many opportunities to stop the spread of CDIS, but I now want to introduce and focus specifically on environment, environmental surface disinfection. You may hear the terms cleaning disinfection used together often, and may, they may seem synonymous, but these two processes differ. Cleaning involves removal of contamination or soil, and disinfection is the inactivation of all or most microorganisms on inanimate surfaces. These two steps can be combined in what is called a one-step cleaner disinfectant product that does both. Disinfectants are regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, and must meet certain criteria to be approved. Only disinfectants can have claims against viruses like SARS-CoV-2 and spores like C. diff. I now want to focus briefly on how disinfectants actually work when applied to microorganisms on surfaces. Oxidative chemistries like bleach, which is the active ingredient most commonly found in formulas approved for use against C. diff, work by deactivating proteins and cellular structural components, including the cell wall. Cells are quickly and effectively destroyed by oxidative chemistries so that they do not have the chance to develop any sort of resistance to these types of products. Because bleach is a strong oxidizer, disinfectants containing bleach must be formulated in such a way that they destroy the microorganisms on the surface they are being applied to without harming the surface themselves. It can be a challenging process to develop a disinfectant that kills microorganisms effectively, does not harm surfaces, and has a pleasant odor for both the people using it and others who will be occupying the space. When using disinfectants to eliminate healthcare environments as a source of infection, the CDC provides specific guidance and recommendations. These include daily cleaning of C. diff rooms, terminal cleaning, disinfection of shared equipment, disinfection of contaminated areas. Risk cleaning and disinfection of these spaces and equipment should be done with an EPA list K disinfectant and applied according to directions for use. Currently, the standard practices for environmental cleaning and disinfection include using EPA-approved products, such as disinfecting wipes, applying ready-to-use trigger sprayers, and traditional mop and bucket to disinfect large areas like floors. Manual cleaning is a challenge. Even with well-trained staff, it is difficult to disinfect every surface every time. It has been found that despite healthcare's best efforts, it is nearly impossible for all surfaces to be disinfected. In fact, only about 50% of surfaces in hospital rooms are effectively disinfected. This leads to an increased risk of infection to the next patient. Also covering large areas can be time-consuming and may not be feasible with limited staffing and budget limitations. Ensuring coverage that meets the required contact time can further complicate this process. There is a need for a quick, easy, efficient disinfection tool to improve this process. I now want to introduce you to a new technology to be used in disinfection in the fight against, back against C. diff and other harmful surface pathogens. This is electrostatic devices or technology. Electrostatic technology is not new. It is well established in industries such as agriculture and used in other applications like automotive painting, spray tanning, and inkjet printing. The reason this technology works so well for these applications is that it allows for even application of liquid to all surfaces of a complex object while minimizing liquid waste. This technology was recently introduced into surface disinfection industry and has the same, same benefits for disinfection. Electrostatic technology offers a new way to disinfect. Instead of applying disinfectant with a trigger or pump sprayer, electrostatic devices take advantage of technology that charges droplets and delivers them directly to target surfaces. When using an electrostatic device, disinfectant can be applied much more quickly and evenly to surfaces than a traditional manu manual disinfection method. This can help facilities disinfect quickly if they use electrostatics in place of a manual disinfectant, but it can also provide extra assurance that spaces are adequately disinfected if electrostatic devices are used as an adjunct to manual disinfection. Additionally, less disinfectant is used overall due to the uniform coverage provided. This not only results in less surface compatibility issues in the long term, but could potentially save in time and overall cost in the short term. Let me now explain how electrostatic devices work. Focusing on the nozzle, 
on the left, which is the key part of the system, droplets that leave the nozzle are charged as they exit the device. Those droplets are broken up into smaller droplets while they are simultaneously being charged. These re this results in evenly sized droplets that repel one another and actively seek out target surfaces like small missiles. Once the droplets reach the, their target, the charge dissipates and the liquid remains on the surface. This results in an even, uniform coating of disinfectant that can wrap around even complex objects like a wheelchair. Here's a comparison. Here's a comparison of how electrostatic coverage differs from trigger sprayers using a trash can as a sprayed object. In this example, the trash can was sprayed only from one side. The nozzle was not moved around the object. As you can see, the trigger sprayer deposits large droplets on the surface that don't wrap around the object. These large droplets are dependent on gravity to fall to the surfaces. This is why you see uneven large droplets on the object. This is also why trigger sprayers are typically used along with a microfiber cloth that helps distribute disinfectant or remove any liquid pooling that might result. On the other hand, foggers or misters have very small droplet sizes. These droplets are so small they often hang in the air for a while and rely on gravity to be pulled down, resulting in higher requirements for personal protective equipment or PPE and longer re-entry times. Electrostatic devices have more of a medium-sized particle, but unlike trigger sprayers and foggers and misters, these particles have an electrical charge making them attracted to surfaces being sprayed. This results in particles immediately depositing and not waiting for gravity and provide even coverage on all surfaces as shown on the trash can. Now that we've explored the technology of how electrostatic devices work, let's take a look at the effectiveness in the real world. Electrostatic devices paired with spore-style disinfectants were shown to be effective in reducing C. diff contamination in the hospital environment. In one study, researchers found statistically significant reductions in C. diff contamination on portable equipment, wheelchairs, and waiting room surfaces when a spore size is applied via electrostatic devices. This was without any wiping or pre-cleaning. They also found that electrostatic application of sporocyte was just as effective as manually wiping, but could be applied up to four times faster. These same researchers, these same re researchers also tested three technologies for toy disinfection in their pediatric unit, including electrostatic spray technology with a sporocytal, a high-level disinfection chamber, and a UV light box. I have included this example as there are many services in the healthcare, in the healthcare setting which um, in rec are recreation or shared equipment that are challenging you to disinfect and therefore similar to children's toys in a pediatric setting. Of the, of the three technologies tested, electrostatic disinfection and high-level disinfection chamber were the most effective in reducing pathogen levels on these services. However, it was noted that the electrostatic devices was considered the easiest technology to use because the spray time was only approximately 20 seconds, and large numbers of toys could be processed, and the toys air dried within approximately 10 to 15 minutes. There was also no visible residue left after the disinfectant solution dried. Electrostatic devices have, a numerous, have numerous applications in a variety of healthcare environments, and for use on, electro, and for use on devices and equipment, including patient exam rooms, waiting rooms, and other large rooms, and hard-to-clean spaces, in transportation or mobile equipment, and between each patient used, or finally as an initial step or as an adjunct to manual cleaning and disinfection. As we adapt to a new normal, we must take advantage of, of recent innovations such as electrostatic technology. Electrostatic devices are shown to be easy to use, and they can cover more surfaces in a, in a short amount of time as compared to other methods. As a, as a time-saving technology, they provide the added ability to both disinfect effectively as well as efficiently. They are even able to get into those hard to reach nooks and crannies. Just by looking, you can imagine the time it would take to effectively disinfect a wheelchair with a wipe or trigger sprayer and cloth. I would suggest that it is nearly impossible task to reach every surface. With an electrostatic device, a complex object such as this can be effectively and efficiently disinfected with a uniform coat on every surface in a matter of seconds. To highlight this, our own internal data shows that over 400 wheelchairs can be disinfected in just 30 minutes. Imagine how long manually cleaning this many wheelchairs would take. So when it comes to electrostatic devices, is a manual cleaning step really always needed? Much like hand sanitizer meets most hand hygiene needs, and manually washing of hands 
With soap and water is reserved for specific times like physical removal of visible soil and in the presence of sea dip, can we consider the application of a one-step senior disinfectant to surfaces that are visibly clean in much the same way? Well, we have some early evidence, as shown in the study mentioned earlier from Dr. Domsky, that it is possible to significantly re reduce microbial counts with just a manual cleaning step. This is not saying that manual cleaning should stop. Just like our hands, we need to perform manual cleaning periodically. We should absolutely perform manual cleaning in the presence of visible soil, blood or bodily fluids, or acetic spores. Additional research may help to shed more light on this in the future, but in the meantime, if there are areas that need to be cleaned and disinfected, but there are insufficient people or resources to do so, targeted disinfection using electrostatic technology should be considered. It is surely better than doing nothing. Over the past couple of years, established practices of infection prevention and control have been impacted. With the pandemic came changes in the way we clean and disinfect our homes, businesses, and healthcare facilities. Some of the ch changes brought about include increased in cleaning and disinfection frequency, having to use unfamiliar products due to supply levels and availability, a change in the who was doing the, the cleaning and disinfection, and new technologies like electrostatic devices that we're talking about today. This pandemic, which caught us off guard, has shown us the need to adapt. We have learned from other industries that electrostatic disinfection technology has been used success successfully for many years, including, our public, including in our public schools. Hundreds of thousands of electrostatic devices are currently in circulation outside of the healthcare industry. The complexities surrounding COVID-19 have also had an impact on the healthcare outcomes. Healthcare associated infections, or HAI rates, which have seen great improvements over the last decade, were shown to have increased and, and any progress made was reversed. D during that same time, CDF rates remained relatively steady and leveled off. Without the enhanced cleaning disinfection practices put into place, this may have also been much worse. As improvements and progress continue, we must recognize that there's much to do and we must utilize the, each tool available in that effort. So to wrap this all up, there's a great urgency to reduce the spread of harmful pathogens like C. diff through infection prevention and control practices like environmental cleaning. New, using new technology such as electrostatic devices will help in this effort because they offer several benefits. Some of these include the ability to provide uniform coverage, unlike traditional disinfection methods. They are effective and safe when used properly. They provide ability for targeted disinfection, especially in hard to reach areas. Less disinfectant is used while still being highly effective and efficient and provides cost savings. HAIs, including CDIF, will continue to be problematic for healthcare and require multiple modes of intervention. Novel solutions like electrostatic technology may help as we seek to eliminate the environment as a source of infection and make our world a bit safer. If you have any questions or want more information about electrostatic technology, please visit us at the health, Forex Healthcare booth. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Our next speaker is uh, Kevin Gary from the University of Houston uh, College of Pharmacy, and the title of Kevin's talk is Ibepolstat the Update, Can Emerging Microbiome Findings Contribute to CD Anti-Recurrence Effect? Thank you, Stu. Um, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Hello from Houston, Texas. Thank you, Nancy and the CDF Foundation for the opportunity to present here. This is this is truly a unique meeting, and to be able to contribute is really great. So I've been working with a, a company called Actrix for a few years now on development of, a, of an antibiotic called Abezapolstat, a CDIP-directed antibiotic. And so it's a small molecule inhibitor of DNA poultry C enzyme based upon the competitive inhibition of D3 
BGTP. So pay attention to that cartoon on the bottom left, and that's, that's C DNA dividing and causing disease. And then if you can see that C, and then instead of grabbing a G, it bumps into a Vesapulsat and, and grabs it. That then gums up Pol3C, and you have yourself dead C. diff. So that, that, that's good stuff. And so then if you know the biology of, of DNA Pol3C, you know it's essential in, in low G plus C content gram-positive bacteria. And based on that knowledge of, of, of the biology, you can actually take a wild guess at what it's going to affect. You can actually take a guess at its pharmacology. And, and knowing that low G plus C content bacteria are firmicutes, you will know that a bezopolstat then should target um, firmicutes. And you can, and in comparison to vancomycin, which has a broader spectrum activity, you would know it doesn't uh, target bacteroidetes, it's gram-negative, doesn't target actinobacteria, because that's high G plus C content bacteria. So you're going to have this targeted spectrum of activity for a bezopolstat just because you know the biology of how the Pol3C enzyme works. And then the question is, is that, is that helpful or harmful or good or bad? And that's the, some of the purpose of this talk today. So, it, it, so a bezopolstat is currently going through um, the clinical trial development. It's just entering phase 2B. So I've been part of the microbiology and the microbiome aspects of this drug development, this phase 1 study. So a, a dose-ranging study for the phase one with a comparator of vancomycin, which is going to be very helpful from a microbiome comparison. Uh, based on the healthy volunteer study, a 450 milligram dose was chosen and used in an open-label study, a phase 2A, of 10 patients, which is now completed. And I'll show you those results uh, today. They're sort of positive findings uh, because the phase 2B has just opened up at 12 clinical sites, 64 patients, 32 given that same dose of Evesipolstat, and then using vancomycin as a comparator. So the phase two open-label study was, was 10 patients all given Evesipolstat, 450 milligrams twice a day for 10 days, evaluated at day 12 for clinical cure, uh, no diarrhea at day 10 or 11, no diarrhea after the end of therapy. And then on day 38, sustained clinical cure, you had to have clinical cure plus no recurrence for a sustained clinical cure. And then a whole bunch of stools collected along the way, and we did some microbiology, PK, and microbiome analyses on that. So for a, a 10 patient study, uh, what you'd really want is all 10 patients to get better, and lo and behold, that's what happened. So 100% uh, clinical cure and no patient experienced recurrence. So small, open label, take it with a grain of salt, but if you were hoping for good results, that, that's exactly what you got. So, so good, good phase 2A study, hence why progressing into phase 2B. Okay, everybody, put on your thinking hats. We now have a, a healthy volunteer study, aka no C. diff, but we do have cool microbiome studies looking at Vanco versus the Vesipolstat. And now we have this very small phase 2A clinical trial. So with that data, can you predict an anti-recurrence effect of the Vesipolstat? Answer one, with limited data, prediction of anti-CDF recurrence is not possible. Answer two, with advanced study of the understanding of the microbiome and CDF pathophys, an above average estimate of the likelihood of an anti-recurrence effect is possible. Since you are all muted and I am not, uh, the correct answer is uh, number two. And uh, that's, that's what we're gonna proceed down if you can see if you believe me or not. So we're going to build this table as, as sort of the case for an anti-recurrence effect of a bezopolstat. We're going to go at looking at the pharmacokinetics of the drug, where we really want high colon concentrations, the microbiology, and then the systems biology. And we'll kind of fill in the table as we go with our best guesses. So this is an old figure, but still a good one by Susan Putinen. So, so why do we want high colon concentrations? Well, as we probably know, uh, the C. diff organism germinates in the small intestine and then grows in the large intestine, in the colon. Very rarely does it ever leave the colon. And so where the bug is, is the colon. So you want very, very, very high colon concentrations to kill the bug where it's at. And ideally, you don't want that, that antibiotic to go systemic because you would then avoid 
systemic adverse events, events and uh, drug interactions. So this is data from the phase uh, 2A study. And, and direct your attention to the, the bottom left chart, the blue graph. And that's the stool concentrations for this non-absorbable antibiotic. And you get really high uh, stool concentrations, over 3,000 micrograms per gram of stool, huge. So if your MIC is 1 or 0.5 or whatever it might be, you can see you well, 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 well above the MIC of the organism. So check. And then, then go up one to the plasma concentrations, the orange and the bluish bars, and notice that the y-axis is nanograms per ml, so negligible systemic absorption. And then if you go over to the right, that's the toxicities. And as expected, because it's not absorbed, you have very few um, mild uh, toxicities associated with this, with this antibiotic. So uh, check. So we have good pharmacokinetics, so we get the drug we want to get it to, and it doesn't go anyplace else that we don't want it to go to. Okay, step two, microbiology. So we want to then obviously kill C. diff. It's an infectious disease. We have to kill the bug. And then what we don't want to do is kill the, the healthy microbiome. We don't want to disrupt it any further. And, and ideally, we'd like it to regrow if we could. So we want to kill the bug and not kill the bug that we care about C. diff in this case, and not kill the other bug that we the healthy microbiota. So this is then data again from the phase two A study that we were able to get uh, seven of the ten baseline samples from these patients. Uh, six of the seven of them grew on on the baseline from on day one, and then for all other samples tested, we weren't able to grow it ever again. So um, potent um, microbiological activity against C. diff for abezapulstat, as would be expected. These are the MICs of the organisms. And remember, we had multiple thousands of micrograms per gram of stool in, in, the, in the stool. So potent microbiological activity against C. diff. That, that's a good thing. Now, to, to understand microbiome disruption, we have to go back to my cartoon just for a quick second. And so if you look at those, all those happy faces, look at, A, how many there are and how diverse they are. There's a whole bunch of different ones, and that's your healthy gut microbiota. And so then go up to bullet point one, and so that, that's, that's called diversity. I mean, we've heard that a lot over the course of this meeting. And you measure um, diversity of micro, like microbiological species by something called alpha diversity. Up is good for the most part, depending on which one you're using. But so you want a more diverse group of microorganisms. Now, if you're having a more diverse group of microorganisms, you want those microorganisms to be the most common ones you see in your gut, aka your healthy gut microbiota. And so that's number two. That's bullet point two. And we've heard these terms a lot. So, so what, what is composed of our healthy gut microbiota? It's the, generally, the firmicutes and the bacteroidetes duke it out to, for, for, for predominance. It's a 49 of one and 49 of the other. Um, so, so in firmicutes, that's that low GC content gram-positive bacteria that I referred to, the target for a benzapolstat. Uh, C. diff is here, but there's plenty of healthy microbiota in there as well. Bacteroidetes, um, it, it also predominates along with firmicutes and generally gets, gets more predominant as you age. And the other component is something called actinobacteria, much more common in, in babies and in, in younger persons. And then as you age, actinobacteria proportion tends to go down, uh, replaced by bacteroidetes. Proteobacteria, this is E. coli, Klebsiella. It is present in your healthy gut microbiota, but only a very small proportions. 1% to 3% of your, of your total microbiota is generally proteobacteria. So, so what you don't want to see is an overexplosion or overabundance of those proteobacteria. Okay, with that knowledge, we can actually turn our attention to the phase one study. And so to orient you here, so start on A, and each of these little boxes is, is a patient. And then each row is the drug that these patients were given. Uh, vancomycin, two different doses of abezapolstat or placebo. And that little gray section, that's when they were receiving whatever antibiotic they were getting. 
So look at the little blue dots at the very bottom of that A chart to begin with, and you see that's kind of a straight line, and that's placebo. So, so our diversity doesn't really change day to day in, in people not given antibiotics. So now look up to the, to the vancomycin row, that first row, and you can see that your alpha diversity drops pretty quickly on vancomycin uh, for pretty much everybody, and that's been demonstrated before, but this also happens in healthy volunteers. And then kind of scan your eyes along the abezapolstat rows, and you say, well, there is a drop, but not quite as profound as what was seen with the vancomycin. And if that's what your eyes are seeing, you're actually correct. That's, that's what happened. So now go over to that B chart, and that's once again as individual patients, and you can see what's happening. First row is vanco, followed by two rows of Beza, and the last row of placebo. And obviously your, your eye hit that red really quickly. And so that's that very characteristic proteobacteria bloom that you get with vancomycin, often seen in C. diff positive patients, and ironically enough, seen in healthy volunteers as well. Now you go down to the abeza polstat rows and you see a ton of purple. And you go, well, what's the purple? And that's actinobacteria. And then if you were thinking way back to that biology of Pol3C, that you know that's the one it spares, and it shows an overgrowth of abeza polstat, just as the pharmacology would have predicted. So that's really cool. And then you can take that knowledge and go into the phase 2A study. Now remember, these are now patients with C. diff infection. So put your eyes on that day one in terms of days of microbiome sampling. That's the baseline sample, and now the alpha diversity is low because of C. diff positive patients, the C. diff patient population with dysbiosis. And then you should be going, holy moly, alpha diversity increased while on therapy, unexpected finding. Now, two things could have happened here. It could have been something healthy growing back or something unhealthy growing back, but in a very diverse manner. So you then have to move on to the abundance tables, which I will click my button and get there. And you will see that we saw, in this case, an increased proportion of firmicutes while on abezapolstat therapy, which continued to go even after therapy was stopped. But that's really exciting news. But remember, C. diff is a firmicute, and there's plenty of healthy firmicutes. So you have to recognize which ones were regrowing. Go over to that B figure, and you see the class. And that class that you see growing is something called clostridiales. This is actually the second slide that I've mentioned that word. And remember that word for about three slides, clostridiales. It's going to be really important. So while on therapy, on abezapolstat, we saw overgrowth of clostridiales. Okay, microbiology taken care of. Uh, it has potency defectivity, and it has a really interesting effect on the microbiota that at least at this time point we'll call minimal disruption. But you might be able to say favorable disruption in a, in a slide or two, we'll see. Okay, uh, in the systems biology, I want to just focus on the top part of this chart. Start your eyes in that top left where you see that normal microbiota. And then we come along with high-risk antibiotics and, and screw up that beautiful looking microbiota, that diverse to have this susceptible microbiota in which the C. diff spores, which are present everywhere, as, as lots of talks already have demonstrated, only with the susceptible microbiota will, will these spores be allowed to germinate and, and cause disease. Now, I'm going to take this exact same figure, but just blow up that top half. And just I, all I've done here is in that, in that left-hand side, I, I copied and pasted the C. diff spores. So why is it? What is it about this colonization resistance of the normal microbiota that when you have your salad for lunch and it has a few spores in there, gulp, 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 why does it just come out spores the other end? Why is it that this normal microbiota prevents you from germinating the spores and cause disease? Well, the answer there is in that bile acid story that we've heard quite a bit about already. So, so bile acids hit, hit your colon, and, and there's lots of in vitro and animal data that says 
if you have a lot of primary bile acids in your, in your intestines, it actually promotes C. diff germination. So it takes those spores and germinates them if you have high levels of primary bile acids. In a healthy colon, you have very, very low primary bile acids because you have certain uh, healthy gut microbiota that converts primary bile acids to secondary bile acids. And those same and similar in vitro and animal models have shown that secondary bile acids inhibit C. diff growth, inhibit the germination, and this is a really good thing. Now, guess what bugs are the biggies to uh, convert primary to secondary bile acids? And if you remember this from three slides ago, it's the Clostridiales taxa. So that's pretty exciting stuff. So, so just to go back to my little cartoon here, uh, so in, if you're putting this together, why this happens is because in a healthy microbiota, your, your primary bile acids are low and your secondary bile acids are high, while in a patient with a susceptible microbiota, their primary bile acids are high and their secondaries are low. So now we can use these concepts to look at the samples from the phase one and the phase two of Ezepolstat studies. So this is phase one. Remember, this is healthy volunteers. And so the A uh, figure is primary bile acids. Remember, we want them low. And secondary bile acids are in B, and remember, we want them high. And so at day zero, that's, that's before exposure and antibiotics, and recognize that everybody's low on day zero for primary, and everybody's high for secondary on day zero. Know that vancomycin is red, and you can recognize quite quickly that you have this big upswing in primary bile acids, as has been shown before with vancomycin, that you don't see with um, abezapolstat. Similarly, you don't see as big of a knock on the secondary bile acids as you do with, um, with vancomycin. And then in the phase 2A study, now remember these patients have C. diff, so just look, it's, it's inverted. In this case, the primary bile acids are high on day one, and the secondary bile acids are low on day one. These are all patients given a benzopolstat. And you can see almost immediately that the primary bile acids go down by day three of dosing, showing a very cool effect on bile acids in patients given a benzopolstat. So there you go, we filled in the chart. So with, with, with 10 C. diff positive patients and a bunch of healthy volunteers, I think we can make a pretty good prediction that a bezopolstat may have an anti-recurrence effects as it goes into its larger and more expensive uh, phase two and phase three trials. Uh, so good luck, a bezopolstat, prove me right. And I look forward to presenting the 2B study, hopefully back here in Boston next year. So, Stu, with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Great. Thanks, Kevin, for a very nice talk and explaining uh, microbiota and bile salts in a very basic way for someone like me to even understand. So that was excellent. Uh, these results are almost too good to be true. but. Uh, they are what they are, that's, that's fantastic, and, and uh, we can certainly use another uh, bullet in our armamentarium, that's for sure. So thank you. We're going to shift now, and uh, uh, before I introduce Kathy Bischoff, I just want to recall those of you who were listening yesterday, we heard the perspective of a C. diff on a, on a caregiver, and this Kathy would be the caregivee. So, Kathy, uh, the title of your presentation, I believe, is More Than a CDI, Revolving Door, and a Ray of Hope. Uh, take it away. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, uh, yesterday my husband presented his side of what he had to go through when I had C. diff. And we don't talk about it much, so it was very moving. But it's an honor to be in attendance with all of you today and to share my personal CDIF story and journey at this ninth annual CDIF conference. And Nancy, thank you for all that you do. As professionals, health advocates, practitioners, and educators, you are all aware of the impact that CDIF now has in communities worldwide. It is no longer an infection of the elderly in nursing homes or the result of a hospital stay. 
It attacks infants, children, and young adults of all races and genders. See, this has no boundaries. Your commitment, your dedication, and your focus on research in prevention and treatment of this horrific infection is so needed and so deeply appreciated. What you do truly does matter. As Stu said, I'm Kathy Bischoff, and I survived seven C. diff infection reoccurrences following my first diagnosis throughout the course of two and a half years. My journey started as a result of an ongoing struggle with diverticulitis. On one December morning, I suffered another attack, and this time I couldn't get out of bed. I was transported by ambulance to the hospital. It was my fourth attack in three months, and similar to previous occurrences, I was treated with antibiotics. And several times during this three-month period, I was prescribed double the normal antibiotic amount when my symptoms persisted. If I had only known then what I know now, while antibiotics are effective in treating bacterial infections, too much of a good thing can result in a C. diff infection. Upon my discharge from the hospital, I was told I had C. diff. My treating physician just casually mentioned it before I left, saying, oh, by the way, you have C. diff. That was the first time I had ever heard of it. And when I asked him for additional information, he said, it's an infection in your colon and I gave you a prescription for it. I didn't know how serious the infection was. I didn't know what to expect or what precautions to take. I certainly didn't think about preventing another infection or managing my symptoms. I would take the prescription and this C. diff thing would just go away. I had no idea that C. diff germs outside the body created spores, that spores can cause the infection, and that these spores can survive on surfaces for months or even years, and that they're now present in all of our communities. I was left in the dark. These are things that you are all aware of. I am now painfully aware. Today, I find the lack of information that was shared with me completely unacceptable. And that was the beginning of my C. diff journey. About a month later, I ended up back in the hospital for eight days after another diverticulitis attack. Options were discussed with my primary physician, and we decided on a surgical procedure to have the sigmoid portion of my colon removed. That seemed to be the area of my colon causing these attacks. The surgery went well, but I felt miserable. And during my post-surgical visit, my surgeon confirmed that I wasn't recovering as expected. I was readmitted to the hospital and diagnosed with C. diff, my second infection. Six reoccurrences followed, and each was more vicious and more debilitating than the one before. Three of them required hospitalization. During each infection, my life was turned upside down. I was forced to become housebound, and I was somewhat of an introvert. It was very frustrating, and it was an isolating experience. I didn't want friends and family to visit, fearing my uncontrollable bouts of diarrhea and just feeling so sick. I was fighting constant dehydration and had severe cramping. I was always tired, always nauseous. An instance of diarrhea could occur 10 or 12 times a day. When going to my doctor's appointments, my car seat was protected with plastic. I carried a complete change of clothing, soap and water, and a container if my nausea couldn't be controlled. My husband became my support system during this time, helping me accomplish even the simplest daily tasks. He prepared my meals. He had to encourage me to eat. He got up nights to give me prescribed medication at directed intervals. He took over all the household duties I couldn't perform and tried to keep my spirits up. It truly was not an easy task being my caregiver. I was just so sick and many times not very pleasant. Each time I started a new treatment, I was hopeful that it would finally conquer the infection. And unfortunately, without fail, C. diff would return about two weeks after each treatment plan ended. 
My system had become so weakened, I was unable to conquer the infection or to restore the needed beneficial good bacteria to my microbiome after treatments. I had no way to fight C. diff from reoccurring. After my last treatment, which was a taper that lasted for nine months, I started to experience symptoms that by this time were all too familiar. I tried desperately to convince myself that it was not a C. diff reoccurrence. The symptoms worsened and I got tested. I can't, it can't, it can't be C. diff again, I thought. You can imagine my disappointment when I found out that I tested positive for yet another C. diff infection. I was devastated. I was physically, psychologically, and emotionally exhausted. And questioning, could I even go through this again? Was this reduced quality of my life going to be my future? And I guess even more concerning is would I have a future? I knew I could no longer continue down the same path. The specialists treating me were at a loss of what to do next. They put me back on vancomycin and said they would do some additional research, but I may have to remain on vancomycin for the rest of my life. I told them that wasn't an option, and they assured me that they would do further research and that they would be in touch. I never heard from them again. There had to be another alternative, so I desperately looked for other venues. I was sick and I was frightened about my future, and I made the decision that I had to advocate for myself and my own survival. While searching for information online, I found the CEDA Foundation's website. I called into one of their support sessions. And for the first time, I felt gratified and relieved. I was finally receiving so many of the answers I was looking for. I was treated with compassion and understanding by the CEDA Foundation staff. They were remarkable. I found people that understood. I learned about recommended nutrition, environmental safety, and so much more. And I found out that there were clinical trials for people dealing with C. diff infections. I was not aware, nor had anyone ever mentioned that, that these trials were actually available. The foundation told me that there were trials available and being conducted when we spoke. There was hope, something to research. I discovered a clinical trial site doing an open-label investigational treatment in St. Louis, and that was five hours from my home. I shared this information with my husband, who simply said, email them, now. I did, and I received a call from the research clinician within 15 minutes of pushing the send button. We had an in-depth conversation about the C. diff trial and about my ongoing battle. All my questions were answered, and further information was emailed and also mailed to me. After doing additional research and talking to my primary physician, who encouraged me, I applied as a candidate and was accepted, and I felt a great sense of relief. Taking this action helped me feel in control of my life again, and knowing that I had a new path was the key, and I actually felt empowered. My clinician was compassionate, knowledgeable, and helpful. I was impressed and comfortable with her and my team. On May 25th of 2016, I was administered the trial capsules. I called them my magic pet bugs. The trial lasted for six months with both office visits and phone calls and the capsules worked. We won the battle, and I gained a friend. It's a joy to have my life back. The infection is gone, but not without leaving scars behind. Anxiety and fear of another C. diff infection always remain. In 2017, I was diagnosed with severe arterial fibrillation, and after several cardiac conversions that proved unsuccessful, I underwent a cardiac ablation in late August of that year. I was assured by my doctors after in-depth conversations that the procedure wouldn't involve my having to take any antibiotics. Based on my past experience, I'm always in fear of needing them. Unfortunately, there were complications and two procedure-associated infections followed while I was hospitalized. They both needed to be treated with antibiotics. It was unnervingly and remarkably frightening. My greatest fear was now a reality. Would they cause another C. diff infection? What could I do? 
The answer is I advocated for myself. I became part of that treatment, and I was very selective in the antibiotic choices. The infections were treated successfully, and I remained seated free. Numerous AFib incidents continued requiring cardioconversions and another ablation which brought no relief. Again, advocating on my own behalf in February of last year, I underwent a third ablation at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio with favorable results. The first concern I discussed with my cardiologist about his treatment was antibiotic use. With proactive involvement in my medical care, I have not gotten another C. diff infection. But my journey is not over. In fact, my journey has me here with you this afternoon. I am now a volunteer for the C. diff Foundation. I am dedicated to raising awareness of this debilitating and isolating infection. From my experience, I have seen the importance of advocating and building educational networking around C. diff infections and the considerable burdens associated with them. The importance of helping patients and at-risk individuals and their families to empower themselves to make informed decisions about the prevention and treatment of this infection and their medical health is so very important. Unfortunately, there are many others who suffer with C. diff and carry its scars. I have been anxiously awaiting the FDA to approve medications to treat and prevent a reoccurrence of the debilitating and sometimes fatal infection. And I am here today to celebrate your achievements and all of your hard work. Today, we are closer to the day that I can put my anxiety and my fear behind me. I am able to tell you my story here today because if it were not for the CEDA Foundation and learning about clinical trials, instead of taking those magic gut bugs that conquered my battle with C. diff, my story would have ended, waiting for the phone call I never received. I am grateful for the C. diff Foundation and for all the progress being made with all of the tireless efforts of all of you. It's not easy reliving my experience. It can be painful sharing my journey with others. But no one should ever have to go through what I did to find the answer to defeating a C. diff infection. So I share my story. I share my story with you today. Because I have faith and I believe in you. You will make the difference. You will find the way to end C. diff and its reoccurring agony. And you all know that C. diff isn't just diarrhea. Thank you all so very much. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.